You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Ovid.tv is the independent streaming home for people who want to watch foreign films, thought-provoking documentaries, and art house gems that are impossible to find anywhere else. For just $6.99 a month, you'll have access to a cornucopia of films to watch anytime and on any device. Vanity Fair calls Ovid.tv a fantastic streamer for people with a taste for foreign, political, and otherwise beyond the American mainstream films. Discover art house titles, documentaries, works of global cinema all in one place. Start streaming at www.ovid.tv. Highlights include the documentary Let the Fire Burn. It's a shocking true story of the escalating confrontations between the Philadelphia police and the Back to Nature Black Collective. The conflict culminated in 1985 with the death of 11 MOVE members, six of them children, and the destruction of an entire Black working-class neighborhood when police bombed the group's fortified house. You'll notice echoes between the film and today's clashes between citizens and the police. From now until October 21st, 2020, save 50% off your first three months of Ovid.tv. Just head on over to www.ovid.tv and sign up with the coupon code PROJECTION at checkout. What number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is miss kat ellinger hello also back in the booth is ms sam deegan hello we conclude september 2020 with a look at vera hitilova's fruit of paradise this may be the most experimental and unusual movie that we've covered as part of september it's a retelling of the adam and eve story directed by hitovala and written by her and esther krumbakova if you're a fan of our September coverage, you're going to hear a lot of familiar names over the next little while as we discuss the film. Jan Schmidt, Pavel Jurasek, Yaroslav Kuchera, Zdenek Liska, and more. Boy, I just probably butchered all of those names. 
where we'll be discussing the end of the film. So if you haven't seen Fruit of Paradise, you have been warned. So Kat, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? Yeah, I don't know. It was after Daisies, definitely. Yeah, it was one I just randomly downloaded because I really loved Daisies. So I don't know, about seven years ago, maybe. Still don't know what to make of it. <laughs> I love it because it it looks so beautiful and that's me, basically. Anything with lots of colours and music and people skipping around, eating. It's got it all for me, but I'm I'm still trying to figure out the meaning. Oh, can I just say I'm really sad this is the last Checktober for this year. We've been kind of doing them all year. Either we're preparing for actual Checktember or doing commentaries for other stuff so it's like been a whole check year for us this is it is kind of sad yeah it sort of reached a funny point where the three of us record so much it probably in the last what like year and a half two years maybe we've been recording so many check commentaries for second run that to talk to the three of you and not be talking about a check film i'm like what is happening Next year, when we talk about what is it, Seven Beauties, we'll be like, uh, are there any Czech people in this movie? We'll just make some up. <laughs> so how about you, Sam? When did you first see this one? So I definitely saw Daisies well before this. And, you know, as I'm, I'm sure we've talked about a million times and everyone listening knows, for a long time, getting a hold of these movies was really difficult. You had to kind of resort to sad bootlegs I want to say I was finally able to find this maybe like four or five years ago. It was so Kat and I did this for our Daughters of Darkness podcast. We did this insane episode on private vices and public virtues, the Miklos Yangshow film. And because we're psychotic, we watched like 15 of his films for one episode And around that time, I tried to kind of fill in my sort of like general experimental Eastern European cinema gaps. And I tried to watch a bunch of things that I had been meaning to see. And I'm pretty sure that's when I finally saw Fruit of Paradise. This one was a new movie for me. I thought I had seen this, but I kept mixing it up with the Apple game because I saw the Apple game when I was in a Eastern European film class, which is really what sparked my love for all of these movies. And it was really strange because I don't know why of all the movies that Herb Eagle picked that we didn't see daisies. We didn't see fruits of paradise, but we saw the apple game. And I would have thought for sure, if he was going to go with one Hitovala film, it would have been daisies. So when I saw that, my mind was absolutely blown. I had only seen the apple game, which is pretty staid, especially compared to daisies and to fruits of paradise. And yeah, now coming to fruits of paradise for this episode, I was completely blown away, and this is one that I've watched a couple times now, and I'm still just like kind of parsing it out because there's a lot of stuff happening in this movie from that opening kind of Stan Brackage animation type thing that's going on all the way through, I guess what we can call the narrative of the film. This is, it's pretty packed. It, It did remind me of Daisy's in a way, but it feels more linear than Daisy's. In every piece that you come across on 
every piece. Like there's millions of pieces. There's not millions. And all five pieces (laughs) that you've read. (laughs) Everyone is at pains to point out that Vera Hitilova would often say, I'm not a feminist and this isn't a feminist film and this isn't Daisy's isn't a feminist film and they're they're metaphors and, and blah, blah, blah. But I think obviously there is feminism in them because of who she was. And she was somebody who was like the only woman director in the Czech New Wave. If anyone's seen the the documentary, and I think Second Run put this then on the Daisies Blu-ray, I, I, I want to say. If yeah, I'm wrong, I think apologies. so. She talks about how it was just so difficult for her because she was married as well to a cinematographer, Kachera. She was bringing up small children. She would, would experience a lot of sexism in the industry. She felt that she was held back. Her quick, so obviously all of that frustration and a very specific female point of view comes out in the films. And I'd say this was, this has some very feminist readings with the Eve and the sexuality. But I do wonder, like kicking off on on a really light note, <laughs> whether she deliberately rejected the label of feminist because she just a uh, second wave fer- feminism that was coming out of America and, and Britain, say, or more America actually. She just didn't relate to that because of Czechoslovakia was an entirely different scene. Even though these people were film directors, they weren't living the glamorous lifestyle. They had pretty sort of normal, mundane living arrangements and they were all quite poor. And I wonder if she just rejected the feminist label because she just didn't identify with the stuff that was coming out of the West. I don't know. It was something that occurred to me when I was doing my notes for this and I wanted to bring it up with you guys. That's something that I think about a lot in regards to some of the female directors that I really like, Hitalova included. And I do think you're right that it has a lot to do with kind of context and time and place. But I also think that it might be similar to Catherine Brayot's situation or even somebody like Roberta Finlay, who... Critically speaking, when you call a film feminist, I think a lot of people have a tendency to just kind of dump it in a box, write it off if they're not interested in feminist critique or feminist theory or or feminist themes, what have you. So I'm sure it's very frustrating. And I know that this is definitely a lot of Catherine Brayat's motivation for saying that she's not a feminist and neither are her films is it's a way for people to kind of dump your work in a box and ignore it and act like there's nothing more going on than, oh, here's this woman waving her uterus about complaining about society. <laughs> I, I think there's some of that as well. There's this obvious like rejection of what feminism means and... I know Vera Hitilova was, like, to be interviewed, I mean, she was just fearless and prickly and rude i mean you'd have to be and and i and i just wonder if she just just thought i don't identify with that at all that's not the world that i had because when you see the documentary she talks so much about what i would equate to the sort of brand if you want to call it that of feminism that i relate to as a working class person which is all about practical matters childcare, healthcare. you know a lot of the stuff you hear her talk about in 
interviews, you is feminist, but it's this just the fact that she completely rejected. So you come across essays and they're like, well, she said it wasn't feminist. So, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, but just because somebody doesn't label it doesn't mean that it doesn't have the potential. I mean, even someone like Jess Franco or Russ Meyer, it can be feminist in certain ways. So I find it interesting. I wanted to get that out of the way because obviously I just want to go feminism, uterus, periods for the rest of the episode. To look at the myth of Adam and Eve, I mean, Eve is just such the scapegoat for, you know, the sins of the world. It's like this whole idea of, and I I never understood this. I mean, being an atheist probably helps me not understand this. This whole idea of, okay, God makes this beautiful place, puts uh, man in there. Oh, I'll give him a companion, open him up, take out a rib, make Eve. And then this whole thing of like, yeah, there's one thing you can't do is eat from the tree of knowledge. Just the idea of the tree of knowledge, that's the first place I'm going to go. Of course, I want to know stuff. I mean, that's one of the purposes of this podcast is I want to know stuff. So it's like, yeah, of course, I'm going to go eat from the tree of knowledge. I never understood this whole thing of why is your God telling you not to be smart you know you're you're he's asking you to be naive and this whole thing of you know oh that's the original sin it's like well yeah count me in then i feel the same way i often think it's just because in that strain of religion you find a lot of sexism and blaming eve for taking that apple and the fall of man you know they've punished us ever since i went on a podcast in the summer on the gorgon and and somebody, the the host there asked me a question of, you know, why do they depict, and it was the reptile, why, what is this thing with women in snakes? And it's like, well, they've never forgiven us to fucking taking the apple off the serpent, have they? And, and through that, you get this whole thing of, you know, women are sly, women are bad, women are corruptible, they need to be protected and, you know, man knows better in his ignorance and it just leads us, I'm sorry if there's any Christians listening to this, but the Bible's just the biggest form of social control the Western society's ever known. It goes deeper than that, too. If you look at a lot of, especially if you're talking about Czechoslovakia and Eastern Europe, obviously a lot of the Mediterranean as well, there's this kind of ancient association between women and snakes. And you have all of these fertility goddesses like Demeter and Persephone in ancient Greece, who have snakes either kind of as their symbols or their familiars, and the church was unable to stamp that out. And so instead of trying to separate that kind of symbolic association, they just twisted it. And I have to agree with you that that whole thing about not like the the fact that it starts off where you're not supposed to want that knowledge. I was raised Catholic and I made it clear when I was, I think, like seven or eight that I was an atheist and I got, I got kicked out of religious school, like not not full time, but like these little classes that you're supposed to go to once a week, I got kicked out because I said, like, you know, I have a pet snake at home, like I the snake seems more interesting than Adam. And apparently that that didn't go over very well. Fruit of Paradise has sort of the same vibe. I can see why we're kin now. So I didn't go to Catholic school, but I went to a school that had weirdly religious overtones, even though my family were atheists. And I actually got in trouble for saying how can I go to one class and you tell me there are dinosaurs and then go to another one 
and you tell me that God made everything. And I was like six and they were so angry with me for asking a genuine question. And they probably thought I'd been at the apple tree because of that. And then they found out I hadn't been christened. And I was Uh told that I was going to go to hell when I was six. I mean, we all are really a one-way ticket. And you can read the Adam and Eve story also, as as you've been saying, as far as women's sexuality. It's this whole thing of, you know, she's the one that's tempted. She's looking for this. She follows the snake. I mean, the snake is phallic symbol. You can't really get much more phallic than the snake. I mean, it's just like, okay, so this whole thing of like, maybe the apple is red and thus the blood of the menses every month and yada yada i mean that was god's curse wasn't it was to curse the woman with menstruation yeah we have to crawl on our bellies like the snakes and yeah we we brought it all on ourselves this is just making me think of Carrie and the dirty pillows. <laughs> <laughs> you can also look at this from a political point of view. This was being shot in 68 when the tanks were rolling into Prague. Uh, I've heard stories, I've read stories of uh, Hitovola. I heard two different things. One was that she was pregnant. Another was that she was breastfeeding. I'm not sure if both of those are true, one or the other. But she was saying something like, you know, oh, yeah, the, the, the milk I was giving my baby was uh, infused with the sound of bombardiers going overhead and coming out for us in Prague. So this whole thing of Robert, the devil character, the snake character, when making his way into paradise sounds a lot like the Soviets rolling into what was this beautiful Prague Spring and ruining everything. It's so hard to separate any film that was being made around that period, though, and we seem to have covered so many quite recently as well, is you just can't seem to separate the Prague Spring from any of those films because they obviously had some sort of influence on on what people were doing and I love the political elements and the fact that you can read this as allegory but for me the reason I first responded to this film was because even though I didn't quite understand what was going on I really responded to the sexual elements this theme of obvious female sexual empowerment and the fact that the guy suddenly becomes scared of Eve and the weird masochism, you know, all the all the pervy stuff was basically what I responded to. But it's hard not to also then think how much of the Prague Spring actually got into this film. I'm sure it's sort of hard to listen to a podcast about this movie, especially if you haven't seen it yet, because it's so experimental. But one of my favorite things about it is in a lot of Hitalova's films, but especially in this one, you can't really separate out those themes of female sexuality and female oppression in society with this idea of kind of larger political oppression. It's almost like to her, they're the same thing, or at least you, they're inextricable, kind of. They were the same thing, though, because she felt, and especially towards the end of her career, she felt very bitter. And when I watched that documentary on her for the first time, it really made me cry because she just felt like her whole career had sort of been muted and she'd been made impotent, not just by the fact that she she split up with her husband and they both continued having careers. I think they split up in the very early 70s, so not long after 
fruit of paradise. But he was able to just carry on working and getting on with his life, whereas she had to take on two roles. She had to be the, the parent and then she was also trying to have a career. And all this political stuff is happening at the same time and, you know, films are getting banned and her friends are, are being ostracised, including Esther Krembakova, who we'll talk about. And I think to her, they were one and the same thing. It was a really difficult, difficult period for her. Well, her whole career was a difficult period from what she said. But this in particular, I think she felt very sort of tied. And uh, one of the things I loved that she said on that documentary, and I haven't seen it for a while, so it's not a direct quote, but she said she realised very early on, because they'd have to go to the board or whatever to get funding or to get things through, was that she could make men very afraid by just crying. It was like their worst nightmare, just turned femininity into, she like basically weaponized femininity, which I I just love about her. So she would just turn on the waterworks. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, I do think she has a point, though, in terms of how political repression and gender-based repression are connected. Because, I mean, this is something that I think a lot of people are talking about right now, which is the more oppressive your government is, or the more oppressive and right-wing your patriarchal society is, women are usually the ones to suffer the most. That's sort of what Fruit of Paradise is about. It's also, I, my favorite thing is that, that use, and, you know, like you said, I'm sure we'll talk about Krumbakova more, but just like that use of red that shows up to indicate I don't know if it's supposed, it's sort of like some combination between signifying sexual desire, but also violence and some kind of weird oppression themes that it is very kind of sadomasochistic. It totally is. There's total aspects of weird uh, masochism in it. And even when Eve takes the apple, because before that she's with this husband and he's just telling her to sleep. You know, you just go back to sleep and she goes off with her little carrots that she buries whole, which I love. <laughs> she's absolutely, she's so whimsical. The, like we're saying, oh, the Prague Spring and political, you know, it makes it sound really heavy. But even this is like so whimsical and joyful. And that's another thing I love about it. She's like this wonderful, innocent character, but she eats the apple. And as soon as she eats the apple, she then hears this story about, well, she puts the mark on herself of the number six. And then she hears this story about a killer who uh, gets a knife and puts the number six into the victim's heads. And she starts to think, hang on a minute, you know, is, is, what's going on and freaking out. And I don't know what Hitilova was trying to say with this, but there's a definite link between sexuality and violence. But you also see it in daisies as well to a certain extent. That link is obviously in thousands of films, but in her films, it exists in this sort of almost inverse kind of, like you were saying, masochistic way where you get the sense that the female character, in this case Eve, is choosing to follow her sexual impulses and her desire, even though she knows that it means violence and death or could mean that. Like you have those scenes where 
she sort of asks him to strangle her or asks him to kill her. And they, they are very, for not being explicit at all and for being kind of restrained in the way that like we would think of sexual content in films, they are weirdly erotic. Or maybe that's just me. No, no, it's not just you. It's another reason why I love this film. <laughs> I found it interesting that this is a co-production between Czechoslovakia and Belgium, of all places, and that this wasn't just a you know shot at Berendov, uh, FAMU graduate kind of film, that there's a little bit more to it. They started shooting in August 68, the copyright on the film is 1969. We've talked so much about films from 69. It played con in 70. And I'm not sure when the film was banned in Czechoslovakia, but I do know that she was unable to work Hitlova until she wrote to, I think the president of Czechoslovakia and was able to get her, the decision of her being banned from filmmaking reversed. And that's when the Apple game came in 76. So this was a huge blow for her career. Yeah. It's a terrible time for her. And I think she felt there were huge parts of her career where she was just impotent. She couldn't do anything. Watching her talk about it is just heartbreaking because she was the most avant-garde filmmaker to come out of the Chetney wave. You've got these two feature-length films at the beginning, Daisies and Fruit of Paradise, which are different to her later films, but they are just completely non-linear, utterly surreal, and unlike anything else from the Chetney wave. And the Chetney wave is pretty surreal anyway, but her films are just totally up there. And it's just heartbreaking to think, had she been able to make more in this period, where would she have gone? You know, when she comes back, she's slightly different. But this whole energy that they had, it's just bang, stop. And I just think that's just so... One of the saddest things about the Czech New Wave is seeing how much talent was just muted, sent out of Czechoslovakia. Or you had people like Esther Krimbakova making costume jewellery which we talked about very recently on the film, because, you know, these amazing talents who just couldn't move. Like Sam said, it was a double blow for Hitilova because then she had the stuff with her divorce and being a single parent and, you know, all that on top. And it was just a really, really difficult time for her. And hearing her talk about it, you can hear, you could hear how angry she was even up till the end of her life about it. There's a documentary called Hitlova versus Foreman, and I've always been curious to watch it, but I can't find subtitles for it. I imagine that she had some issues with Foreman, especially the way that he left and had such a huge career once he got to the United States. I'm sure that she probably resented that quite a bit. Yeah, I think she did have a lot of resentment, which is sad to see, but understandable, I think. But just seeing her cry, because there's a, a part in the documentary where she just breaks down and cries talking about all of this. Which, it's so horrible. It's just, it's really, I, it just really affected me, that documentary. Because I, I mean, this is naive of me, I guess, but because I knew the Czech New Wave films before I knew the history and the political context. So I kind of knew, well, yes, they were living under communist, like the basic thing, but I didn't really know what was going on. I kind of naively assumed, you know, you had people like Hitilova, and so it was very progressive and, you know, they had this scene, but no, that's not true from what she said. 
at all. She had to really, really fight tooth and nail, even before the Prague Spring, to just really be taken seriously and be able to make films at all. So she, she was like a total warrior in that respect. It's something that I feel like has been coming up in my life a lot in conversation with other women lately. This idea that if you actually want to be overtly feminine in any way, or if you have children or things along that those lines, it's much harder to be taken seriously in your career. I mean, this is mostly in terms of film-related careers, but she's such a strong example of that. It, you think of her as being somebody who's totally fearless, and she was, but when you also think about how much opposition she came up against and still managed to make the absolute craziest films of the Czech New Wave, I know everybody talks about daisies, and we all love daisies, understandably, but in a way, I think Fruit of Paradise might be the better film, if only because it feels like such a, like a kind of a joint effort between Hidalova and Krumbakova. I love daisies, but when I saw Fruit of Paradise after seeing daisies, it just, it blew me away even more than daisies because I'd heard about daisies. So I kind of knew what to expect with daisies and people are like, oh, daisies is amazing. It's amazing. But I hadn't heard anything about Fruit of Paradise. So I got it completely on a whim, not knowing anything about it and just wasn't prepared for it. And the whole time I was just like, oh, my God, what is this film? This is incredible. Yeah, I think it is. It's a beautiful film. It is a beautiful collaboration between those two. And I think that's why it is such a feminine film as well. And people think feminine as in, you know, girly and it's got beautiful costumes, obviously, because it's crumb back of a, it's very sensual. There's loads of textures. So that part of it feels feminine, but feminine can also be this, this very particular type of rage. And this film has it in, in space. Like it's just the rage we're not supposed to express. <laughs> There are some qualities about it that remind me of Medea and just how, you know, you have this woman who's kind of being told what to do by her husband and she, uh, granted, you know, she doesn't kill any children in, in Fruit of Paradise, but she just kind of has had enough. It, it also made me think a lot about Zhuavsky's possession and how there's this love triangle that makes people crazy. When I watched it again for the podcast, I was vaguely thinking of possession in certain parts, but not making a conscious sort of, you know, thinking about it. But there were certain scenes in it that did the, all the eating stuff, for example. Yes. And there's lots of passive aggressive eating. I absolutely love the restaurant scene where she... It's just draped in that thing and all over the violin player. And you've just got those two it's guys. It's so just good. Like, <laughs> it's just like getting more and more angry with it. And it's just, oh, it's just so wonderful and funny as well. If you haven't seen a lot of Zhuavsky films, and I feel like most people have only seen Possession, sadly. All, every single one of his films have these crazy, hysterical, melodramatic restaurant scenes or kitchen scenes where people, and it, often they say things about gender roles and domestic relationships, which I think is definitely the case in Fruit of Paradise. But 
it's just sort of people are driven to insanity by their spouses and romantic partners, by these love triangles. And so they just have like these insane outbursts. And that definitely happens here, although it maybe is more whimsical. But I was also thinking about those scenes that sort of dominate the second half of the film, where she seems to just like lose control of her body in the best way. Totally, totally. It's like something erupts in her as soon as she takes the apple. And something just erupts in her that's obviously very sexual, but it's also prone to danger and and violence as well, that she can't control. And so she has these... I don't know anything about the actress at all, unfortunately, but she's like a... She reminds me of a dancer. I don't know if she was a dancer. She must have been. Whenever we talk about Czech films, and I even made a mention of this up top, what I found interesting was that she went outside of that core group of actors that we've talked about so many times and went to a theater company, the Ypsilon Theater Company, and they, uh, I think the the three main characters, Eve, Joseph, who's the Adam stand-in, and then Robert, who's the Satan or Snake stand-in, they were all in a short movie called Carmen, not only according to Bizet. And after that, I think uh, Robert Jan Schmidt was in The End of a Priest. And then all three of them show up as our main characters in Fruit of Paradise. So she's going outside of the fold and bringing in these theater actors who act in a very interesting way. There's this theatrical way that they're doing things. I'm thinking especially the end of the picture when it is just Ava and Robert and they're out in that field and there's the snow. Just the way that they almost dance, like you were saying, almost dance around each other. It reminds me of a silent film horror, though. Yes. Like Caligari or something. Like the way they're moving and they've got, like uh, Sam mentioned it earlier, but that big like red silk scarf or whatever it is that seems to go on forever and the way they're sort of playing this game where you think he's going to kill her and there could just be no no dialogue no music no nothing and it just totally it's like a silent era sort of and most of silent era actors were stage actors like it, it makes sense that they came from the stage i don't think a film actor could have done that it like a lot of the vibe of fruit of paradise feels like some crazy improv exercise that's what made me think of Zhuavsky so much is this it's all especially with things like the devil and some of his his films where he kind of taps into this idea of acting as a kind of shamanic possession where people are almost kind of acting in that sort of like early silent film melodramatic style, but there's something about it that doesn't seem exaggerated exactly, but that seems almost kind of like otherworldly. Jan Schmidt reminded me so much of Jan Klusak from the uh, party and the guests. When he's got the beard, I think it was probably the beard. There's no gap in Schmidt's tooth, but they both have that kind of crazy energy. And I'm thinking of the beard, of course, with uh, Valerie in a week of wonders. I know that Klusak. No, I mixed them up. I was looking and then I thought, no, hang on. No. (laughs) 
you're so smart on and he he does remind me of that like weird the weird priest guy plays as well in valerie there's something about him that's just and no disrespect to the actor because he's wonderful but that is just deeply perverse there's just something about him he reminds me of those like early silent film serials where there's some sort of dastardly criminal who kidnaps a lady yeah. and, tie, and ties her to the train tracks and there's that like piano music playing in the background he's That's a total him. snidely whiplash he is <laughs> and schmidt was the only one like the other two actors would be in like eh, maybe like a dozen other things but schmidt went on to have a huge career he was even in ferret vampire so another favorite of ours it is wonderful. Can we talk about, because one of the things on my notes is Bacchanalia. Like half oh, of this, yes, please. <laughs> half of this film feels like a Bacchanalia. And we have this wonderful scene very near the beginning where you have Eve on the beach with this group of people. So there's this woman that's buried up to her waist with the biggest boobs I've seen in my life. Like they're bigger <laughs> than her head. But she looks like she's wandered in from a Fellini film. Yeah, she totally has. <laughs> totally, isn't it? It's like the same thing. She's maternal sexy. She's got that Fellini look. And then there are people eating this, they're eating these oranges, and Eve is like squeezing the oranges. And to go back to what Sam was saying about it being erotic, even though there's like no sex in that scene, even though there's a woman with huge breasts as well, there is something about it that's like profoundly erotic. <laughs> I can't quite work out what it is, but it's like this wild pagan energy in that scene that's just like, whoa. You talked about the costumes and so many of the people in that scene, especially when they're playing with that orange balloon, they're wearing almost flesh-colored outfits. So they, the first time I looked at it, I was like, are these people all naked? Is this a nudist colony? <laughs> To go back to what we were talking about earlier with this idea of how a lot of the acting style seems to be this kind of like silent film acting, in that scene in particular, especially the woman with the giant tits makes these faces at people like you just know what she's thinking. There's this one point, so she's buried next to this man who I guess I assumed is her husband. And she makes a face at somebody off camera like she wants to fuck them. And her husband sort of looks at her like, <laughs> I know what that face is. And so it's <laughs> you're, you're, to you're totally right. It's all throughout. And that's what I think is so brilliant about so many of Hidalova's films. This idea that like people don't have to come out and say things or you don't have to explicitly show things to know exactly what's going on. And that orange is seen. I feel like that's the closest that Fruit of Paradise comes to being like daisies, but everything else is just like ramped up to 11 compared to daisies. Like it makes daisies look restrained. <laughs> I just wanted to mention this is the second time me and Sam have talked about buried beach tits because we really love Red Spotted Bride as well. <laughs> It's becoming a thing. Someone's going to send an email now and say, could you do an episode on women bur buried in the sand with their tits now? It's yes, well, we'll have to do an episode of women buried in the sand and also an episode of women having sex with bed frames because both of those things seem to happen in late 60s, early 70s 
European cinema, but the scene of the woman in Fruit of Paradise buried in the sand is the complete opposite of Blood Spattered Bride, where she has these kind of small boobs, and the scene is meant to be much more surreal, whereas here it's just full-on pagan orgy. She's wearing a snorkel, though, in Blood Spattered Bride, though. But that beach, I want to live on that beach. If I could go anywhere and live anywhere, I want to live on that beach with those people because they just seem like they're having the best time on that beach. Uh, whereas I want to I want to live in the really dark green kind of almost scary looking woods at the end of the film with the giant red scarf. It's so gothic. I know that Kat and I in particular sometimes interpret things as being gothic when like maybe they aren't but it totally is here everything is that room that she goes into uh robert's room i mean that's just one of these crazy like i'm expecting a ghost to come out any moment because that whole room seems like it's just so old and just bizarre like the weird things that he keeps in his drawers the cherries and all these things is like what the hell's going on here it's because he's a serial killer and we haven't even talked about that really there's no we haven't mentioned this what well, kind of did I, before you say that though i read in one essay somebody described where eve lives as a bourgeois health resort and it's like what fucking health resorts are you going to do right <laughs> Have they seen this film? Can we go there? Is this a place we can buy tickets to? Because I'll go. It makes me think of this really awful 90s film. I don't know if either of you are going to know what I'm talking about. I think it's called Exit to Eden. It's Oh, yeah. This, okay. It's like this film that stars Rosie O'Donnell as a cop who goes to this island that literally is an S&M resort to investigate a crime and she has to go undercover. And I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but <laughs> it, it I feel like the island in Fruit of Paradise, like the beach, it's it's part of that same island. It reminded me of that kind of Mount Etna landscape from Porchile, where it's like yes. the soldier wandering around and looking for other soldiers to kill and eat. It's just, it felt so post-apocalyptic. And it feels like this whole health resort is something that was really vibrant in the 1950s or 40s and has just fallen completely into disrepair since then. Yeah, it kind of reminds me also that the sort of Porchile look that you're talking about, it reminds me a little bit of Parajanov. And I don't know if it's like the color contrast or what, but I mean, it's definitely not, I, I think, meant to copy him at all. And it's, I think it might be before Color of Pomegranates, right? No, that was the same year, 69. Interesting. That super distinctive use of color and texture, it, it's like it almost doesn't matter what the hell's going on. <laughs> if you put anything in Technicolor, like even some really dour Hollywood melodrama, not the gothic type, about generations of families, and you put it in Technicolor, I will just love the shit out of it. <laughs> I'm just yeah, like, I, I feel the same that's way. bright or has a lot going on visually and all the little details and everything, I almost don't want to rip it apart too much into political metaphor because I think Fruit of Paradise is just such a truly magical film. 
And if you start to analyze it too much, like, what does this mean? What does that mean? And this and that and put in these kind of, it, it sort of destroys that. I think it is purely, to go back to the silent cinema reference, Hitinova was somebody who just early on in her career just worked purely in this visual medium. It's almost like, same with Daisy's, same with the early film ceiling. It's like words don't matter. Narratives don't matter. It's all about watching and visuals. And I absolutely love that approach to to film. She was a lot bolder than her male peers in a way because a lot of them were adapting existing texts or they were making surreal films. But compared to this one, they look fairly conventional, most of those films. Like even the, the report on the party and the guests has a logical, you know, obvious metaphor to it. Whereas Fruit of Paradise could just mean so many different things. And I think it's made to just make us respond completely in an emotional way to what we see. And I absolutely fucking love that sort of cinema, obviously. And we've talked about it a lot with Barovchek and Zhuowski did it and, you know, all these wonderful deviants that we love so much. Yeah, Rob Grier, definitely. Rob Grier did it, yeah. I totally agree with you. And obviously, you know, all three of us are film critics. So our jobs and, you know, just what we like to do in general is to talk about and analyze film. But so this might seem contradictory. But I do think there are certain films where people shouldn't want to listen to a critic tell them what it's about. They should just experience it for themselves. And I definitely think for me, Fruit of Paradise and something like Celine and Julie Go Boating are probably on my top five of don't read anything about it. Don't listen to anyone talk about it and try to explain it to you. Like it's just meant to be this visceral experience. And it probably means something different to everyone. We've been unfortunate that we've only just seen them on home video. So imagine seeing this film on the big screen. Can you imagine what an experience that would be? Uh, She plays up the red so wonderfully. And these outfits, the red crushed velvet that Robert is wearing when we see him in his red satchel. And then her, Eva, in the white with the red flower. And then eventually the outfit flips. And then eventually she's all in red and you were talking about that red sash. And I want to say when he wraps her up, she's in white, but then when he takes the sash off, she's in red and it's just so gorgeous to see. And yeah, I can't imagine that on a 30, 40 foot screen. I think I'd die. I wouldn't survive. (laughs) It would be too much for me. But wouldn't that be a great way to go? Like if you knew that you were going to die and you could bring some, I don't know, like nightshade or something with you into the theater and just (laughs) eat it while the film is ending. What was the guy's name? Keys, the Edward G. Robinson character from uh, uh, Soylent Green, where it's like, don't play Vivaldi and the beautiful nature music. Just play this Hatilova film for me and I'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, but speaking of music. Oh, the music. Yeah, I meant to say this earlier when we were talking about how parts of the film seem kind of gothic, that Zdenek Liska score 
It makes the film so much more, it's incredible. It's one of my favorite things ever, but it makes the film, I think, more foreboding. And it also, once I thought this, couldn't get it out of my head. It's so similar in certain parts to that repetitive score to Jess Franco's Venus in Furs. It's like it has some of the same, it's like that same kind of downbeat theme I'm glad you didn't mention this before when I saw it because again, it's stuck in my. Stuck it's in, in my. It's going to be in my head forever country. now. No, it is. <laughs> it does have this really parts of it are quite very, like you said, on ominous, very, very gothic. And I think parts of this film are deliberately gothic. Like they seem to play on the or fairy tale gothic. They seem to play on that idea of the lost maiden in the woods and being chased around and the big bad wolf and. The, the score is just exceptional, but then we've talked so much. He seems to have done so much, uh, Zidnek, Lishka, so many important films, and all of those scores are just so different from one another. If it's not uh, him, it's Fisher. Is that right? Lubush Fisher? Yeah, Fisher. Yeah, well. it's like one or the, the other seemed to have scored almost everything for the Czech New Wave. He also, and we we should talk about this a little bit because I'm obsessed with it, like the way the film starts and ends is with this choral singing where it's basically this chorus of women and then a man's voice joins them who kind of acts as a narrator randomly in the beginning and the end and I love it so much. Oh, and it's, yeah, straight out of Genesis and it's just like really plays up and at first the credits are amazing. These all hand drawn and the use of like leaves and flowers and fruits mixed in with the hand drawn credits. And then the opera thing plus the brackage opening. I didn't know if the whole movie was going to be this type of stamp brackage animation thing that was going on. I'm kind of glad that they went with the narrative after a while, but God, that opening with that animated type style was just amazing. Everything about this is amazing. It's 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 so hard to talk about. We're terrible critics, really. <laughs> We're supposed we to be really so. Oh my god, this is beautiful. Oh my god, this is just so. Oh, the red. I'm just gonna start crying. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's hard to actually. Yeah, because it's like a non-linear, non-narrative thing, and it's made out to be experienced, and so. I would imagine anyone listening to this episode who hasn't seen the film is probably incredibly confused right now. But anyone who's seen the film is just going to totally know as as long as they love it as much as, as we do. And I can't see that anyone can't love that film. If you don't send me your address, I will come to your house and burn it to the ground. <laughs> There's a a switch that happens somewhere in the movie, which is at first Eva is really pursuing Robert. And then I think it's after she stamps herself with the number six. And I'm glad that Peter Hames pointed out that it's similar. Her stamping herself is very similar to the whole stamping scene in closely watched trains. It totally is. Right. (laughs) Especially that she does it on her thigh. And I was just like, okay, it's like almost in the same spot after she stamps herself. Then Robert is interested in her and will pursue her. But when she's pursuing Robert, it really reminded me of Alice in Wonderland and this whole idea of her pursuing the white rabbit and him constantly disappearing. And then at one point the key 
quote unquote falls. It just pretty much appears on the sand. And then she takes that key. And I was just like, this so reminds me of Alice with the different keys, with the eat me, with the drink me. I was thinking that she would go into his room and while she was going through stuff, he's got that drawer full of cherries. Maybe she'd pop one of those in her mouth and she'd start to shrink or grow. Who knows? But yeah, it just really reminded me of that at the beginning. And then, yeah, you said he's a serial killer who I thought that he stamped each victim with a number you know, like the first victim with the one, kind of like the Frighteners or something. But I guess he always stamps them with six, which I guess fits into the whole Book of Revelation thing with the 666. And so he seems to get really turned on when she has that six on her thigh. And she gets really freaked. I mentioned it earlier, but she gets really freaked out when she realizes she sort of marked herself. Because before that, she's acting like this this crazy. Per- I love the bit when he she picks up his satchel very near the beginning, and he's giving him his satchel back, but she doesn't want to give it back. Like she's holding on to the satchel, like, and he snatches it away. Really, kind of like just give me the bag, you crazy woman. <laughs> And 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 she's got a husband as well at the same time, and it's almost like she moves this other guy in with the husband, and then they're together, and then she's sort of all over the the violinist in the restaurant. Or I think that part is wonderful because they're really freaked out. The husband becomes very freaked out by her behaviour when she suddenly becomes. This orgasmic presence, that's the only way I can describe her. She goes from being very, very sweet to this burgeoning orgasmic presence that can't quite control herself. That point that you just made and Mike's earlier point, comparing it a little bit to Alice in Wonderland, it makes me think about this this thing I read a few years ago about how in Alice in Wonderland, there's this whole connection between the fact that once Alice leaves childhood behind and leaves innocence behind and becomes sexually aware or sexually mature, that's the sort of moment that means she's going to die. It's it's sort of a, a moment that says, okay, now that you're an adult, death is not far behind. And this whole idea of that transition that we were talking about with her marking herself becoming this totally different presence that her husband is kind of afraid of. It made me think of that a lot because that point is also when you start to see red appear in the film so much more and she starts to wear pink and like different colored clothes. We've talked about that this idea of clothing as being so important to identity when we talked about Coach to Vienna how a woman's dress can make her seem older or younger or more or less sexual. And I think that's definitely one of Krumbakova's greatest talents. And here it's on display more than anywhere else in her whole career. I think with Krumbakova, and we seem to talk about her so much recently. We we, do. (laughs) We've just done so many films that she was either credited as a screenwriter or costume designer, but she was always so much more. And when she was with Hitilova, they had a very strong partnership. They were very much in tune with one another. And so even though it's Hitilova directing, it's it's more of a, a joint effort between the two. And Krembakova had very, very specific ideas about costuming, and it was always to do 
it wasn't just, oh, I'm just going to give her a pretty dress or we need a red dress or whatever. It always had some very significant meaning for her. Krembakova would also, even if she wasn't doing screenwriting, she would be involved in what somebody would usually consider a directorial decision. She was usually on the set of things as they were being shot, feeding in to the director or assistant director or whoever with ideas, incredibly creative person. I think you put her and Hitilova together and it's just, it's incredible. You get a film like Fruit of Paradise that can never be replicated and is unlike anything. Like we're saying, oh, it's a bit like this and it's a bit like that. And of course, you know, it came years before Possession, but it's also totally fucking unique. Like I've never seen anything else like it for the energy, for just this very strong energy that I I don't even know if I'd call it female empowerment. It's not no. that. It's a celebration of complicated women, and which is even better than the whole empowerment cliche. It's, it's that women are complicated and sexuality is complicated and life is complicated and marriage is complicated. It just has all these different emotions in them and some of them are very angry emotions and and some of them are awe and some of them are driven by the libido and I think it's these two women that come together as a creative force and it just explodes same with daisies but this one even more I think this one is a lot more emotional than daisies in in I, I don't know if emotion was the right word Do you know what I mean no I I know exactly what you mean and I I do think that daisies is a film that is more intellectual is the wrong phrase, but it's a film that seems to be all about thinking and communication. And it's much more, even though there's not a ton of dialogue in it, it's, uh, to me, it's a way more intellectual film. And this is a much more visceral film, even though they both have these kinds of orgiastic eating scenes and it just I, I feel like that's not going to make any sense if you've only seen daisies and you haven't seen fruit of paradise yeah. but no no it's it's not i there, there's something about this i think daisies does have the certain pagan elements so it has a lot of nature in it and nature coming into homes and this blur between nature and and civilization and it has this strange sense of sexuality Daisies is a very nihilistic, deliberately nihilistic film. It's like, let's just blow everything up. Let's just smash everything up. Let's just, you know, laugh at the world. And, and Fruit of Paradise isn't that like that. It feels much more personal. It feels like there's a lot of emotion in there, but that's just how I respond to it. But it, there, there's most, there's angry women's emotions in that film that I can smell. That's sort of what I meant by Daisies is more intellectual. It's like a film written by someone who has particular political leanings, and it feels much more of a kind of political intellectual anger that's driving it. Whereas this is so much more complicated. And to go back to the point that you made at the very beginning of the episode with this whole question of is it feminist? Is it not fem feminist? Is Hitalova feminist? And, you know, you and I have talked about this before a lot on our own podcast, but I've always had a really hard time with that label. Because to me, growing up, it often meant this kind of 
rejection of sexuality and rejection of this idea that oftentimes desire and life are complicated and in a weird way, a rejection of actual like literal female issues like childbirth and raising a family and and things like that. And I, I think that's what I love so much about Fruit of Paradise is I think she says, I'm angry because these things are so complicated. And to try to simplify them for a political agenda is in some way emotionally dishonest. And the Fruit of Paradise to me is all about like being driven by those feelings. And I think that's also why it sort of it like it kind of has a narrative, but it's just you just have to see it. Well, she's not scared of the serial killer. And she plays out this little game, like they're running up and down, like Sam said, like the, the, the maiden and the, the creepy guy trying to tie her to the tracks. They seem to play out this accepted game. And there are times when she does genuinely look scared. And, but there's times when he looks genuinely look scared or her husband genuinely looks scared. It's almost like they're forced to play this game that none of them are fully in control of. And they are confused by it and, but sort of driven to carry on. But there are other parts in that game where she should be scared, where she's clearly enjoying it. She's clearly been enjoying being chased around the forest and playing out these stereotypes of, Oh, I should run now. And she's almost like goads him to do it. It's like when she says to him, will you kill me now? She's not supposed to do that. She's supposed to run away. She's supposed to get her husband to save her or something. But she's just so into the game and she's really enjoying it. That element reminds me so much of Rob Grier. Because so many of his films are about people sucked into those repetitive games that kind of go on in this loop and there's something unpredictable about the game where you agree to a certain amount of violence or a certain amount of masochism, but then sometimes it becomes too scary or it becomes too much and you think like, well, what have I gotten myself into? But much more than in Rob Grier's films is exactly that point you just made about how Robert is equally scared at times, and he's not only the aggressor or only the perpetrator or whatever you want to call him. His character is so strange, the way that he will turn on a dime, the way that he also has weird moments of physical comedy, like there's a moment when he almost like literally falls into the room that she's in. It's just bizarre. And the scene where he's hiding behind the tuba, which makes me laugh out loud every time I see it. (laughs) Yeah, there's the tuba, there's the drum set. It's like musical plays a a part of this. The drum playing scene is amazing. She just starts playing those drums and they're like kind of freaked out by it. They're so freaked out by it and she's just totally going for it. And there's this, again, going back to the silent comedy thing, there's a uh, an attempted murder where he finds this angel statue. Robert finds this angel yes. statue under a tarp and she's outside. And so he and uh, he gets Joseph to help him move the statue near the, the window. And then he eventually figures out a way to make it fall out the window. And he's like, oh, that's the end of her. And then, of course, she's not underneath where the statue was. 
Because <laughs> they're kind of like, they work together because they're both really freaked out by the drum playing, I think it is. So they're just sort of giving each other the side eye, like, fuck, you know, she's lost it now. And and so they get that thing and he's like, oh, this is a lovely foot on this statue. And he just tips it and the other one just pushes it. Really yeah. hard. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, she's gone now. And they go outside like really scared. And then she appears again and they genuinely look terrified of her. I think she drives them insane. And one of them is supposed to be there to kill her. But she's too much of a match for him in so many ways. He, it's like there are parts when... He just gets this look on his face like, I'm totally out of my depth here. What have I done? I talked about how Jan Schmidt, it's not his voice coming out of his mouth. And I I haven't been able to confirm this any place, but I think that he was voiced by Joseph Sommer. And then I think that Schmidt voices the Robert character. Or sorry, like they just the, swapped. the Joseph character. Well, it was like, uh, it wasn't Carol Novak doing his own voice, but then it's not Jan Schmidt doing his own voice, but he's doing the voice of Joseph while, or Joseph while Joseph Summers doing the voice of him. It's really strange. I'm like, <laughs> why would you do this? But I guess other than to be experimental, because there are moments, you know, I talked about the brackage type opening. But in the rest of the film, I mean, we're talking about all of these crazy things that happen. It's also shot in a very unusual way. The the editing is will throw you off. There are moments where it's almost like a, I guess, kind of like a silent movie thing again, where it feels like it's being overcranked the way that she's moving around or almost like a stop motion kind of a way that she moves. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough where you're just like, okay, I don't know what to expect with, with the next time that we cut to something else. It could be someplace that I don't know. It could be something happening that I don't know. She keeps us on our toes the entire time that we're watching this movie. Yaroslav Kuchera, who was the cinematographer, who was married to Vera Hitilova at the time. If you look at the cinematography that Kuchera did on, on some of the other films, we did Diamonds of the Night which is just, I know we talked Astounding. about that recently, yeah. just so surreal. He did Daisies. He did Morgiana, which is another one that we did with Chuck Tober, Little Mermaid. And he was like a really, really experimental cinematographer. I know Hertz wanted him for The Cremator, but uh, Kachara at the time turned him down, which is kind of sad. But then he, he came back because he wasn't part of the FAMU gang. But then he came back and he worked with him on Morgiana, which is all like fisheye lenses and weird points of view. Sometimes you're the cat, sometimes, you know. So there's a lot of Kachera in there as well, I think. Those three working together is just like the perfect, perfect parts of the Czech New Wave sort of experimental craftsmanship. Yeah, I did notice a nice fisheye lens happening in here at least one time, and I was like, "Oh, okay, this is this is good." You know, the way we're being distorted um, in the in the film is great. It just has such a, a beautiful look to it. Yeah, the you know the more we've been talking about it uh, with a lot of these experimental elements, it really does kind of seem like a silent film serial. And now I'm not going to be able to think about it that, or I'm going to be able to not see it that way when I watch it again. But it's, it's so strange because like the cinematography is not at all like a silent film. Uh, like there are some of those kind of physical comedy things that you mentioned, but 
it's so much it's like it's so for for anybody who hasn't seen it it's so hard to describe how textured it is it's the kind of movie that you i'm sure if you saw it in a theater you just would sort of be lost in a lot of these really really richly textured scenes and i know he does that for things like diamonds in the night but in a very different way the only film that i can think of that is as textured like like a sort of sensual texture, as sensuously textured as this, is Peter Strickland's Duke of Burgundy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he would be very happy to hear us say it that. It is. You can tell him that, because it is. There, there's very few films that actually can... It's one of the things that I really loved about Duke of Burgundy was these just these beautiful textures that you feel like you're interacting with something that's almost 3D and it's soft and it's sensual and there are all these layers to it and there's leaves and there's flowers and there's silk and there's... And I can't think of any other film that does that apart from the Duke of Burgundy has this obviously totally different style. But in terms of sensual texture, I mean, even Daisy's... Daisy's has it a little bit in some of the scenes where they're like in their bedroom, but no, no, nothing like this. It's like layer upon layer upon layer, and it's just absolutely beautiful. Which goes back to what we were saying: it's a film that needs you. You just you experience it, you feel it. You don't sit there and you know follow a story or think think about it. You have to totally just let yourself go and just slide into it. We touched a little bit about the way that Eva is pursuing Robert, but one of the reasons why she's doing it, I think, is to make Joseph or Joseph jealous because he gets a letter in the mail that she says is perfumed, so it's probably from one of his lovers. And he doesn't seem like the guy that would have a lover, uh, a side piece. He's such a schlub. He's so apathetic and just so dull, isn't he? And just so (laughs) – he's like a weird non-entity. In a way, apart from when he's being jealous and passive aggressive, that seems to be his two emotions. Yeah, he's what the sort of character type that I think of as being very Jonathan Harker, where he's just super milk toast and forgettable and seems to exist only as a way of forcing this woman into particular social conventions, but forcing her in a very kind of passive way. Yeah, like lie down on this bench, just go back to sleep. And then she's there growing his carrots for him and everything. And she's just so whimsical and he doesn't appreciate her. No one appreciates whimsy enough. No, he just, see, yeah, he is totally milk toast. He's always just like, come on, what are you doing? Just wants her to quit having fun, quit standing on rocks, all of these kind of things. <laughs> just come on let's go home i i love i love the scene where they're laying in bed and she gets up and she says do you mind if i go out and he says like he says something like yes don't go anywhere and she's like okay and goes right out the door with this like impish look on her face (laughs) yeah she has that kind of vibe to her she has that it's it's a little Bjorkish in her face, but she just always seems to be like, you know, like a, a twisted smile. Just like, I'm going to do whatever I please. Thanks. No, no, no. My God. I, I was trying to think who she reminded me of. And it is. It's Bjork. <laughs> it's yeah, like that's totally, totally it. 
She just has this look like it's sort of, she's smiling, she's happy, but she's just going to do what she's going to do, and it's kind of cheeky. She's also potentially a troublemaker, yes. But you don't see Joseph on the beach squeezing oranges or, like, you know, throwing the ball around. He's too square for that. He does not look like an orange squeezer. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't. It is very interesting how often she is framed by nature and that she is often very small in the frame. But yet, since she is so powerful and so colorful, even if she's in white, she's surrounded by like a field of green. Or if she's wearing red, she's surrounded by a field of white. So she's always standing out so much. Even if she's like small in the frame, she's still our main attention because of the way that she pops off of the screen. And you're right, as far as the colors go, this is so luscious and it's just wonderful. Just tracking her outfits through this movie is and you know just a joy in itself to see how she changes from scene to scene or moment to moment. It's like Wonka vision. I just want to touch everything and put everything in my mouth. That should be the tagline. I mean, we've already talked about Krambakova and just how many times food shows up in movies that she's involved in, and this is no exception. I mean, from the titular fruit of paradise to the cherries to that dinner scene to the oranges, I mean, food is just front and center so often in this movie. Well, and I think something that we haven't really talked about yet that I know gets talked about fairly often in connection to daisies is this idea that the communist censors didn't like her exorbitant use of food. It sort the of felt like... The wanton destruction yes. of cabbages. Was, yes. Exactly. How <laughs> dare you destroy those cabbages, which is funny because Zhuavsky did the same thing decades later, and it does feel weirdly defiant, like in a way that food fights in American films do not feel just this idea of sort of political oppression, like you can't have these orgies of eating or scenes like that, because it's just, uh, you know, evoking Western debauchery. Which I love. I'm as a wanton person. All about debauchery. Where people are lying around eating wantonly and, you know, nude on beaches, smashing up oranges, you know. (laughs) But it is that thing that tends to offend so many people with a particular sort of, I guess, straight-laced sensibility. It's like anyone who goes against convention, it just seems like so outrageous. And the fact that Vera Hitilova could do that just with food is incredible. She could annoy them just to that level by smashing up destroying food and they could just get and so squeezing oranges and squeezing oranges <laughs> and just being so wasteful and so i guess there's people always sort of squeamish i guess about things like that as well aren't they debauchery and food those those people are not who are not open to life kind of get really upset about it oh it's, quite it's very puritanical health, health people who would watch that film and just get really upset by it. <laughs> it all sort of falls under the same umbrella to me, this idea of whimsy and kind of dangerous sexual desire and luxurious eating. It's all enjoying this kind of visceral pleasure-based side of life and 
really stepping away from this idea that, you know, we only eat to nourish ourselves, or we only have sex to procreate. It's the total opposite of that. It's, you know, if I want to bury myself in some sand with my tits out, like, that's what I'm going to do today. I have to go all the way back to when I talked about Edward G. Robinson playing keys in Soylent Green. Sorry, he played keys in Double Indemnity. He was Saul Roth in uh, Soylent Green. So just put the tweets down. You don't have to tweet at me that I said something wrong. Too late. That'll be a one-star review. Well, we've already talked about periods, uteruses, women having sex, smashing up food, being greedy, slagged off the Bible... If anyone tweets at you, just tell them to go squeeze some oranges. Show was great before 2016. What happened? Getting all these whimsical women on. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. There's a new podcast on the block. Video Vortex Podcast. Listen in as Bucks, Ben and Steph have a conversational discussion and talk about how much films affect us as people and as a society. Yes, we do all of those things. Along with guests from the industry and beyond. And get sucked into the video vortex. Don't say sucked on a promo. <sighs> we most definitely are making up on the spot. Find us on assorted apps and at videovortex.podbean.com. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. All across the country, by 4 a.m., TV screens go blank. The late, late show is over. The Freeling Home is different. Although nothing is on, something is there. Poltergeist, it knows what scares you. Rated PG. Starts Friday. Check newspapers for a theater near you. 
That's right. We'll be back next week to kick off October 2020 with a look at Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Sam and Kat. So, Kat, what has been keeping you busy lately? We just did Rest in Pieces, another Larouz film for Vinegar Syndrome, which was just so... Um, we, as in me and Sam. Um, and, Not the royal we. Yeah. <laughs> we. Um, for once. So we got to talk about Jack Taylor, who we love, and Patty Shepard, and weird suicide cults, and zombies, and ghouls. I was very educated about what a ghoul is by Sam on that track. And I'm just so <laughs> excited that it's coming out, because I, I thought we were going to have to wait ages, and then it was like literally just announced so i'm like so happy also i know people are sick of me going on about this but my patreon on cat ellinger's confessions of a cine slut i've got vlogs and blogs and trailer commentaries and all sorts of stuff on there so check it out please we also did another joint commentary for mano macabro on queens of evil oh speaking of luxurious (laughs) eating We've like literally just done that one as well. Oh. We did. It's quarantine brain. Everything's a blur. Sam, what else have you been doing? I also just did a solo commentary on this amazing British serial killer film called I Start Counting, which is, I believe, having its Blu-ray debut. At, at any rate, it's been restored. It looks amazing. Uh, that will be out very soon. And... I finally, so I I have another podcast uh, all about goth movies called The Evil Eye. And because of quarantine, we hadn't recorded all year, but we finally just recorded an episode on Blackula and Scream Blackula Scream that will be out soon. Oh, that's why you kept saying I only want to talk about Blackula. I thought you'd just gone into some weird frenzy. (laughs) It it really, it's hard to tell. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Let's be the passion of the mind.
Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.